Let me uh, begin by saying something provocative. Easter is an anti-religious holiday. And you think to yourself, that's, that's insane. Of course, it's not an anti-religious holiday. It is probably and arguably the most important religious holiday. And I would argue and say that no, Easter is at its core an absolutely anti-religious holiday. You see, religion is the idea that we must do certain things and become a certain way for God to love us. Religion says that we must get right and get clean if we want to get on God's good side. That we have to clean up our act before we can go to God. Religion is all about doing and sinning less. It's about self-improvement. It's all about earning and deserving and striving and getting gold stars for good behavior. Religious practice, in fact, entails all of the things, believing right, behaving right, worshiping right, that humans throughout history have thought they needed to do in order to get right with God. One of my favorite writers, if not my absolute favorite writer, Robert Capon, put it like this. The church has drugged itself into thinking that proper human behavior is the key to one's relationship with God. Now, I would venture to say that most churches, sermons, Christian books, the, the primary messaging that the world gets from the Christian community is that God loves clean, competent people. That's what I believed growing up in some of the environments that I was in, and I realized very early on that I was not good, I was not clean, and I discovered shortly thereafter I was also not too spiritually competent. So I just concluded that Christianity, therefore, must not be for me. If God is for good people, if he's for clean people, if he's for people who dot their I's and cross their T's and color within the lines and stay within the lane, then Christianity's not for me because I'm none of those things. So as strange as this may sound, religion actually is not about God at all. It's about me. It's about my discipline and my obedience and my faithfulness and my sacrifice and my improvement and my commitment and so on and so forth. Religion's all about me. It's about what I do. In fact, religion actually is bad for you because it breeds narcissism. It's constantly pushing you to think about yourself. How am I doing? Am I getting better? Am I sinning less? Have I improved much over the past year? Am I doing all the things I should be doing? Am I getting better? And so on and so forth. Am I giving enough? Am I praying enough? Am I loving enough? Am I becoming increasingly moral and well-behaved? That's terribly narcissistic. Narcissism, I think I said this last week or, I don't know, maybe a couple weeks ago. I said over the last, I don't know, maybe four or five years, uh, the word narcissism and the concept behind it has been trending. 
Everybody's calling everybody else a narcissist. There have been books written about narcissism, lots of books written about narcissism and narcissistic disorder and so on and so forth. And every time I read an analysis, as apt as they may be, I'm like, this is nothing more than a new word on an old idea, namely original sin. I mean, what's more narcissistic than Adam and Eve listening to the serpent in the Garden of Eden and saying, yeah, you know, that sounds good. I do want to be like God, okay? That's incredibly narcissistic. Uh, so it's just original sin. And what I said a couple weeks ago is that means there are two kinds of people in this world, okay? There are narcissists who know they're narcissistic, and there are narcissists who don't know that they're narcissistic, but there's no such thing as a non-narcissist because we're all Sinners. Well, religion feeds into our natural default mode of narcissism because it's constantly pushing us to think about ourselves, to consider ourselves, self-improvement, self-care, self-this, self-that, self-the-other. It's all about the self. It's about me. Well, religion feeds that. The focus of religion is on how I can make things right between God and me by what I do and by how good I can become. And that is why Easter is anti-religious to the core. Because Easter isn't about us and what we do for God. Easter is fundamentally and beautifully and powerfully all about God and what he's done for us. It's about his work on our behalf. It's about his sacrifice, his faithfulness, his devotion to us, not because we deserved it, but because we didn't deserve it. It's about him, not us. The message of Easter is not a message about you. It's a message about God and what God's done for you. It's a message of grace. The eccentric grace of God, which does everything necessary to make us right with him. So this may sound strange to you, but believe it or not, uh, the goal of Christianity is not to make you a better person. It's not to make you sinless. That's not the goal. There are lots of books and there are lots of uh, messages and lots of conversations that would seem to indicate that the primary goal of Christianity is to make you a, a better person, to make you an improved version of yourself, to make you stop sinning or to at least sin less. But the goal of Christianity is none of those things. The goal of Christianity is simple. It's to give you Christ. That's it. To deliver, free of charge, his love, his forgiveness, his righteousness. It is to freely give you everything that Jesus has done for you. It is to freely give you everything that Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. And so we are, by virtue of what God has done for us, we are sinners undeserving of the cloak of righteousness that has been wrapped around us, what I call a, a straitjacket of forgiveness. So what God has done for us and not what we do for God is the primary message of Christianity. And the reason that Christianity is not fundamentally about us being good or getting better or sinning less is because none of those things solve our deepest problem. 
Sinning less doesn't solve our deepest problem. Getting better doesn't solve our deepest problem. Um, being good doesn't solve our deepest problem. We say things, I was thinking about this the other day, we say things like, nobody's perfect, as if that's okay. I mean, we've so normalized imperfection that we don't see it as the eternal catastrophe that it is. I mean, think about it for a second. God, the Bible makes this clear, God damns imperfection. Well, if that's true and none of us are perfect, we're screwed unless something has been done for us and given to us. You see, God... God doesn't demand that you try hard. He doesn't demand that you're good. His demands are much steeper than that. He demands perfection, not goodness. He demands sinlessness, not sinning less. That's what he demands. So in light of God's command to be perfect, becoming a better person doesn't help me. Religion doesn't help me. In fact, religion makes me worse. Because rather than fixing my eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, I'm fixated on me, what I call spiritualized navel-gazing, constantly evaluating myself, keeping score on myself. We need someone outside of us to do for us and to give to us what we cannot do and get for ourselves, no matter how hard we try, how much we improve, how good we get. And this story that I just read of the rich young ruler is one of my favorite stories to illustrate that Christianity, okay, if, if you only hear one thing I say this morning, hear this. Christianity is not about good people doing good things. It's not. Christianity is about a good God doing great things for bad people. That's what it is. So when I say things, and if you've been around here for any period of time at all, um, then you've heard stuff like this before. But when I say things like, God loves and uses bad people because bad people are all that there are, I always get pushback. Always. There's always someone that's like, hold on a second. Okay, I don't fancy you calling me bad, mister. Okay, I'm really not that bad. I know what bad is when I see it, and I'm not that. I'm a pretty good person. I do good things. I'm a faithful husband, a faithful wife. I'm a good mom. I'm a good dad. Um, you know, I'm not irresponsible with my finances. I don't cuss. I don't drink too much. I only smoke on the weekends. I mean... I'm a pretty good person. There's always somebody who pushes back when I say, you know, God loves and uses bad people because there aren't any other kinds of people. Most people don't like that. When I say things like, you'll never know how good God is until you first realize how bad you are, someone always objects. Someone's always like, no, hold on a second, man. I mean, seriously, aren't you being a little dreadful and dreary? I mean, really? Come on. I mean, I'll never know how good God is until I first come to terms with how bad I am. What if I don't think I'm that bad? Okay, there's always, now, there are a whole host of reasons why there's pushback to that idea. Not reasons we get from the Bible, because the Bible says some things 
that are um, diagnostically pretty depressing for us. Things like, there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's Paul in Romans 3. That's not Tullian, that's Paul. Romans 3, the Apostle Paul. Or when Jeremiah says in the Old Testament, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately sick. You know that passage where um, the Israelites, this is before they had a king, and all the other nations surrounding them had kings, and God hadn't given them a king because God established himself as their king, but they wanted a human king. They wanted, they wanted to look like everybody else and to be like everybody else. The Canaanites have a king. We want a king. So, you know, God says, okay, I'll, I'll give you a king. And he gives them King Saul, who fit the profile. Tall, big, a warrior. Well, he crashed and burned. And then he raised up David. David was the second king that God anointed to be in charge of Israel. Um, and uh, when the prophet went to tell David, he was just a boy, and he said, uh, God sent the prophet to tell David, hey, God's anointing you to be the next king after Saul. And everybody was kind of like, what, this kid? I mean, he's a 12-year-old shepherd. This is, he's a very unimpressive child. He hasn't even gone through puberty yet. This guy's going to be our king? I mean, we'll be the laughingstock of the nations if this guy is our king. And God said, uh, or the prophet said, listen, um, while Men look at the outside, God looks at the inside. And I remember reading that for years and being encouraged by that. You know, like, I, I, men see, people see the outside of me, but, but God sees the inside. He sees the good part. He sees the goodness of my heart. He sees my well-intentioned heart beneath the surface of all of the sort of crustiness and badness that other people see, there's this purity inside that God sees. And then as I got a little bit older and got to know myself a little bit better, I realized that's not very comforting that God sees the inner part of me. Because there's a lot of hate in me and there's envy in me and there's jealousy in me and there's lust in me and there's, there's a lot of bad stuff in me that quite honestly I can conceal from you guys it would actually be better for me if God only saw the outside. But God sees what no one else sees. And trust me, the stuff you don't see is a lot worse than the stuff you do see. And that's not just true for me. That's true for you too. So the Bible seems diagnostically depressing when it talks about our condition, the human condition. And so the pushback that I get when I say things like God only loves bad and weak people who fail because there aren't any other kinds of people, doesn't come from the Bible. The Bible supports that. But it comes from us sort of growing up in an environment where we've come to believe that in order for us to feel important, worthy, and valuable, that we have to see ourselves as being good people that our greatest problems are outside of us, other people, circumstances, and the only solution is inside of us. Where Christianity says the exact opposite. Christianity says your greatest problem is inside of you. And the only solution to your greatest problem is outside of you, namely Jesus. So there are a handful of reasons why 
Um, we push back when someone says that we're not as sweet and good as our mother told us we were. Um, there are a handful of reasons for this, but one of them is because we typically understand the word good in terms of what we do or don't do. That's the way we understand it. I mean, in that sense, if we're using that definition of good, if the definition of good is what someone does or doesn't do, in this sense, I would call myself good much of the time. I mean, I, I care about other people. I love my wife. I'm, I'm always there for my kids. Um, I help people when and where I can. I don't break the law except when I drive, and then I break it marvelously. I reached a speed going down Indian Town Road the other day, coming home from dinner with my wife in my passenger seat that would cause every single one of you, if you knew what that speed was, to get up and walk out right now, okay? So, but I pretty much keep the law, except when I drive. Um, I think I'm pretty nice and friendly, and those who know me best would probably agree. So if we're using the definition of good, as being what a person does and it's sort of the good things that someone does and the bad things that someone avoids, then I would consider myself a pretty good person. But how do I reconcile my definition or our definition of good with Jesus' words here that no one is good but God? Now that seems, well, hold on a second. I mean, if I'm evaluating myself and especially as I compare myself to people who are a lot worse than me, and I can think of a handful, even in this room. I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean, I can think of a handful, but when I'm comparing myself to people who I think are worse than I am, it makes me feel even better. My friend David Zoll says, we may all agree that we have all fallen short of God's glory, but for some reason that never prevents us from comparing distances. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. Um, so if I evaluate myself based on this definition of goodness, then how do I reconcile my definition of good with Jesus' words here that no one is good but God? I mean, that doesn't seem right. I, I know lots of good people, people who are sacrificial, kind, loving, generous, I think the answer lies in what we usually mean when we use the word good and the way in which God uses the word good. As I, as I just said, I, the way we normally define goodness has to do with what a person does or does not do. So a good person is one who does the right things and avoids the wrong things. A bad person is one who does the wrong things and avoids the right things. A good person is someone who is nice and kind. A bad person is someone who is selfish and mean. But in this passage, Jesus reveals the way God defines goodness, which is very different than the way we typically define it or the way our culture defines it. Um, Jesus here in this passage cuts through the outer behavior of a person and looks at what's in the heart, which is not good. And he exposes what is in this man's heart by hitting him where it hurts. Okay, now, the first thing to notice is this, this guy's question. It's the first thing. He comes up, some translations refer to him as the rich young ruler, so we know that he's young, and we know that he's wealthy. And Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and this guy comes up with his entourage, and he says, good teacher, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life. Now that on the surface may not seem really arrogant or presumptuous, but think about it. A good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, eternal life is within my grasp. I possess enough power internally to do whatever is necessary to deserve eternal life. So just tell me what it is. Tell me what those things are and I'll get busy. I'll get to it. Now, his question is absolutely religious to the core. What must I do? Now, a couple weeks ago, I was referencing John chapter 6 where Jesus is with his disciples and they're zealous and they're excited. They want to serve God. They're serious about God. They want to sacrifice for God. They want their life to be all about God. And so they ask Jesus, um, what, what must we be doing, Jesus, to be doing the works of God? Because that's what we're about. We are all about doing the works of God. So if you just specify what those things are, then we'll do those things because we're serious about God. And Jesus, in an incredibly anticlimactic way, says, you want to know what you should be doing to be doing the works of God? And they're like, yes. And he simply says, just believe in me. And they're like, okay, yeah, we got that. Ha, ha, ha. What, what, what do we need to be doing? Did you understand our question? And of course, Jesus says, just believe in the one who came to do for you what you could never do for yourself. That's how you know. Um, so this man's question mirrors that, reflects that same sentiment. What must I do? It's a question we're asking ourselves all the time, even if it's not in reference to God. What must I do? What must I do? It's about doing. I mean, we're told that what we do is what forges our identity. Who we are is based on what we do. Everything is dependent on what we do and the decisions we make to not do certain things. So this question is not foreign to any of us. What must I do? We may say that God's love is unconditional, but we assume that we must do something to earn it. God will love me if I'm good. God will love me if I obey. I will, I will inherit eternal life if I do the right things. If I clean myself up. If I stop all of my bad habits, then I can go to God. Now, there are a whole host of things Jesus could have said in response to this, okay? whole host of things. He could have said, listen, buddy, um, I hate to sort of, uh, I hate to rain on your parade, but there's nothing you can do. In fact, it was your doing that created the mess that you're in, okay? So in, in actuality, the whole reason I've come is to undo everything you've done. So... You're asking the wrong question. Now, he could have said that, uh, but he didn't. Jesus goes through some of the Ten Commandments, and this guy's response is laughable. Laughable. I mean, Jesus goes through, what, half, maybe five of the Ten Commandments? And this guy's his answer is, 
Okay, I, I, listen, thank you for your answer. I, I've been doing that since I was a kid. That's child's play, man. Give me a real challenge. I mean, this, this Ten Commandments stuff, I licked that years ago. I've been keeping those rules from the time I was a kid. So what else? Give me something else. Come on, give me a bigger challenger. This is nothing. That's, that's child's play. Um, Jesus could have said, now, if I were Jesus, by the way, and he said that, uh, it's interesting here where um, after he said what he said, verse 21 says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. See, I would have been so annoyed that I would have buried the guy in arguments. I would have made that guy feel like he was this tall. I would be like, what, are you freaking kidding me? You've kept all of this since you were a kid? What, are you, what, are you kidding? But Jesus didn't do that. Now, if, if I were Jesus, that's what I would have done. I would have asked him one question. Are you delusional, man? Seriously. You actually think you've kept this stuff since you were a kid? Jesus could have said, you know what you have to do? It's just one thing. All you got to do is remember one thing. Just be perfect. That's all you got to do. Simple. Just be perfect. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. After he says everything he says, he concludes by saying, therefore, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, we look at that as an inspirational challenge. Okay, I can do it. If Jesus told me to do it, I must have the ability to do it. No. Jesus says things like that to cause us to come face to face with the sad reality that we can't do it. The law of God is a merciful wall that we crash up against to realize our own powerlessness. That's what Jesus is doing. So he could have said that. He could have said, all you have to do is be perfect. And rich young ruler, what that means, for example, is you must love perfectly, sacrificially, and selflessly, not just on the outside, but on the inside too. Uh, in, in other words, you must want to love perfectly and sacrificially and selflessly. You must want to do that. Not only do you have to do that on the outside, you have to always want to do it on the inside. I, it also means, rich young ruler, that you are never to hurt anyone, ever, physically, emotionally, relationally. In fact, you can never even want to hurt anyone. You must always want to help everyone. Everyone. He could have said, uh, rich young ruler, this is what that means. If anyone has a need... You have to meet it, especially your enemies. Don't hold grudges, never anger your children, don't ever lust, never be proud, don't ever, ever talk behind someone's back, never seek revenge, don't retaliate. In fact, you can never even want to retaliate. He could have said all this. I would have said all that stuff. If Jesus had asked me, how should I respond to this guy? This is what I would have said, okay? Um, in fact, he goes on, he could have said, listen, rich young ruler, what that means is that if there is ever any desire in your heart at all to hold a grudge, to not forgive, to be proud, to lust, to gossip, to be greedy, even if you don't act on those desires, the desire to do it is itself sinful. So you can't even desire any of those things Ever. Well, my gosh. I mean, that would have buried the dude. 
Maybe that would have been the smelling salts he needed to realize the foolishness of his question. Jesus could have said all that, but he didn't. Instead, Jesus simply says, okay, well, if you've kept all those commandments, good for you, kudos, I'm impressed. Just do one other thing, okay? Just go sell all of your possessions and give everything you have to the poor, your house, your cars, your boat, everything, and come follow me. Now, what's interesting about that is in doing so, now, the man's response, as I read a little bit ago, is that when Jesus said that, he walked away sad, sorrowful, it says, because he had many possessions. He was rich. Jesus was hitting him where it hurts. In fact, Jesus was essentially showing him, you think you've kept all the Ten Commandments? You can't even get past commandment one, which says, have no other gods before me. Your inability to rid yourself of all of your goods proves that that's your God. Your God is your money. Your God is your possessions. Your God is your financial security and the power and the influence that comes with it. That's your God. And so Jesus is like, listen, buddy, he said this very sweetly and Jesusly, okay? He said, uh, you know, listen, I, I want to sort of in a gentle way show you that, buddy, you haven't kept the Ten Commandments. We can't even get to command, I can't even get to commandment two with you. Just here's, here's the proof that you haven't even got out of commandment one, that you can't keep commandment one. Go sell everything you have. And the man walks away. He's sad. Um, now, he could have said all of that, um, but Jesus wants to make one very clear point. To be in with God requires total perfection, okay? To be in with God requires sinless devotion, untainted faithfulness, untainted to be in with God requires unbounded sacrifice and absolute generosity. You have to be perfect as God is perfect. And the man walks away sad. So when Jesus says no one is good but God, he's not saying that the whole human race is filled with mean people who never do anything good and right. Okay, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that in God's economy and according to God's standard of perfection, there is only one who is good. One. Now, had the rich young ruler stuck around, he would have heard the only news that could have set him free, which Jesus says in verse 27. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. Because after hearing Jesus' interaction with this guy, his disciples are befuddled. They're like, well, okay, well, hold on a second. This guy just told you that he's done everything, everything. He's kept the Ten Commandments. We thought that was the goal. That is a religious goal. Keep the Ten Commandments. The law must be kept perfectly to be in with God. And so Religious people strive to keep the law, God's standards, God's rules, God's pattern of behavior that he, that he gives to us. They, they seek to do that with all their might. They're climbing a ladder. They're crawling their way to God. They're striving by becoming better and getting good.